0: We are on Sermon 4 from Paul's letter to the Christians in the ancient city of Colossae. We began this sermon series by looking at verse 2 where Paul says he is writing to those in Colossae, the saints, and the brothers and sisters in Christ. And I mentioned in that very first sermon that Paul begins this way, I believe, intentionally. This this parallelism between in Colossae and in Christ. It's as if Paul is saying to these Christians, you may have residence in Colossae, but more significantly, you are in Christ. And I said that morning, to put it in uh, language that we understand today, we may reside in the 903. But more importantly, we live within the sphere of Christ. Though of, those of us who claim Jesus as our Lord, we live in Christ, And continue, I continued that morning by mentioning at least five ways that we live in Christ or the significance of that. It means we exclusively belong to Jesus and to no other. It means that we are inseparably joined to Jesus. It means that we are also joined together with others. In a new family, it means that the only identity that matters to God is that we are Christians. We are in Christ. And finally, it means that Jesus determines our behavior. And so there is this ethic associated with being uh, in Christ. This past week, I took a break from studying and I was looking at social media and I I came across a tweet from Christianity Today and it was uh, sharing a link uh, to their website and the title of an article caught my attention. The Bible's best description of salvation is a phrase we rarely use. So I clicked on the the link, and uh, this article is written by a woman named Julie uh, Canlis. Listen to what she says. This idea of being in Christ is arguably one of the most potent aspects of Paul's letters. Although we tend to speak of salvation as Jesus in my heart a phrase used only one time in the Bible, or as Christ in me, a phrase which is mentioned only five times in the Bible, Paul says something far more often. He uses the phrase in Christ 165 times. The Bible's favorite way of describing our salvation is one we rarely use. For Paul, salvation was simple. It was being joined to Jesus Christ. Candleston then asked the question, so how do we enter all this? How do we abide in Christ? She says, first of all, the church is the context for our union with Jesus She then says, secondly, if the church is the primary context for abiding in Christ, then baptism in Jesus enacts our union with Him. Paul says that, then she quotes from Romans 6, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. In baptism, we experience the gospel in water. We physically declare that we are dying to all attempts to be ourselves apart from Christ and instead are raised to new life in Him. Another text which pinpoints uh, baptism as enacting our union with Jesus is Colossians 2 and verse 12. And that is our text this morning in our fourth sermon from Uh, the book of Colossians. Jack Cottrell, in his book titled Baptism, a Biblical Study, says this, A good case can be made that Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13 is the most important New Testament passage concerning baptism. And hopefully we will see why he makes that claim as we continue through this lesson. Our theme throughout this series has been uh, Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul says there, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The Colossians are warned not to be enslaved by worldly Philosophy, Paul says it's empty, it's phony, it's humanistic, and it's worldly. It appears, this, this philosophy, to be a syncretic blend of Judaism, Christianity, Hellenism, and pagan mystery religions. Scott McKnight, in his recent uh, commentary on Colossians, writes this about the philosophy... At work is a group of teachers advocating an asceticism designed to lead worshipers into ecstatic, sensory, and mystical experiences. Through these experiences, the powers of this world, the elemental spirits, could be defeated or transcended. Or as we have alluded to through our first three lessons in this series... Put bluntly, Jesus was not enough for some reason for these Christians in Colossae. Jesus was not sufficient. But Paul argues in our text this morning that redemption, a new creation, a fullness of life, being in Christ does not occur through rigid rule-keeping, mystical maneuvers, or repetitive ritual but through baptism into Jesus, the Christ. Being in Christ is sufficient. Being in Christ is enough. So let's look at this uh, text. And Paul seems to do three things in uh, our verses this morning. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 11, he speaks of a spiritual circumcision. He says, "...and in him..." You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Jesus. This is the only New Testament text that relates circumcision and baptism. Now, before we continue, let me remind us of the significance of Jewish circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, Genesis 17. Every Hebrew male was to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, Leviticus 12, verses 2 and 3. Every male slave of of an Israelite was to be circumcised, Exodus 12, verse 44. And any male foreigner who lived within Israel and desired to eat the Passover was also required to be circumcised, Exodus 12 and verse 48. And so even though circumcision was practiced among other groups in that period of world history... Circumcision became a distinguished boundary marker between Jew and Gentile and arguably the mark of Jewish identity. But it is interesting that both Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 16 and chapter 30, verse 6, as well as the great prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4, 4 and Jeremiah 9, 25 warn that God is most concerned about a circumcision of heart and mind. So we might ask the question, why would Paul in this text relate circumcision or connect circumcision and baptism? Again, I quote from Scott McKnight is, it, "...it is reasonable to think that the Colossians were being pressed to be circumcised to complete their conversion." But in this text, Paul says there's no need of that. They have been circumcised. They have been circumcised, not performed by human hands. Or in other words, they have experienced a spiritual circumcision by God through His Spirit. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 2 verses 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In this spiritual circumcision that we experience, identifies with the circumcision of Christ, a metaphor for the death of Jesus on the cross. And so then we come to verse 12, and Paul says that this spiritual circumcision occurs in baptism. Three things in this verse that we learn about baptism first of all, it has two dimensions. There is a burial and a resurrection. Now, what kind of people do you bury? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Dead, dead people, all right? We are spiritually dead uh, in our sin, but you resurrect people to be alive. You know, we have examples of people who were resurrected in uh, Scripture. Secondly, insofar as baptism being a work, it is the work of God. When we are buried in the watery grave, as we sometimes say, God goes to work. He cuts away our sin, and then He resurrects us or raises us, now alive in Christ. And thirdly, there must be a personal faith in this work of God. Faith is a response to the act of God in Christ. Faith requires a surrendering trust in God. It's taking God at His word that He will indeed do the things He says He will do in baptism. Faith is always assumed to lead to baptism. Baptism always assumes faith for its validity. And so here in verse 12, Paul has said Uh, We've been buried with Christ in baptism in which we were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him also from the dead. So this, this spiritual circumcision occurs in baptism. The text concludes in verses 13 through 15 with Paul recapitulating or retelling what he has just told us About circumcision and baptism. And when you were dead in the transgression, in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over, uh, over them through Him. Paul now reminds the Colossians of their process of salvation, redescribes their being united with Christ, reveals in more detail what that means. They were, again, spiritually dead in sin, spiritually uncircumcised. But God made them alive in Christ through baptism. And it means, first of all, forgiveness. It's interesting, the word that I think all of our English translations uh, translate as forgiven is really graced. We We maybe don't often think of grace being a verb. But God has graced us by forgiving us. God has extended his mercy to us. And that mercy continues to be extended as we live within this fear of Christ. Paul also says to to symbolize this forgiveness, this, this certificate of debt. Only time this word is used in the New Testament. We might use the phrase, I owe you. It's as if we have given God this, this IOU of, of all of our sins and, and the spiritual debt that, that we have occurred that, that we are unable to pay. And Paul says, uh, God, uh, as he cuts away that sin, he also cancels that IOU. He forgives that debt. And, and rather than being alarmed or feared by the elemental Uh, spirits of this world, Paul would have us to understand that God has disarmed them. We need not fear them. Living within this fear sphere of Christ, being in Christ means that those rulers and authorities have been disarmed. Uh, There is no need for us to fear them. There is no need to to add to Jesus to help us overcome uh, those uh, influences. So, we can see why Jack Cottrell might say that that this is the most important text in all the New Testament about baptism because it emphasizes uh, our death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, our identifying with Jesus, the importance of faith, the importance of understanding what God has done or what God does when we are immersed into uh, Jesus. Well, as I was studying through this uh, text uh, this week, there, there were four things that, that I kept pondering or reflecting upon that I, that I want to share with, with you this morning as we conclude uh, this, this study. First of all, in, in thinking about circumcision, physical thir- circumcision being uh, one of the identity markers for Jewish people, I couldn't help but wonder, I, you know, I asked myself, what distinguishes my Christian identity? Well, what is it that identifies me, and, and some of this is, is a self-identity, if, if someone were to look at me, what distinguishes me? Is it the fact that I'm a preacher or a minister Is it where I attend church? Is it the fact that I go to church so many times a week? Is it through uh, the way my church chooses to worship? You know, what is it? You know, in in this world, we're often asked to to identify ourselves and think of all the different ways, all the different ways we can identify ourselves. Name, address, social security number, phone number, Facebook tag, email address, what level of education we might have. I mean, our favorite sports team. You know, I mean, we can identify ourselves in a number of ways. But you go back to verse 2 of chapter 1 as Paul begins this letter. What should be most significant for us is the fact that we are in Christ. And I would hope that our first point of identity is the fact that we are a Christian, one who belongs to the Christ, one who belongs to Jesus. And so as we go through our week remembering who we are and whose we are uh, and, and, and really grasping the significance of living within the sphere of Jesus. Secondly, and we've already made this point, The central action of baptism belongs to God. And and I I think this is important for us to think about because we, churches of Christ, are occasionally accused of promoting a work salvation. We we are often accused of, of preaching or teaching that just in the physical act itself of being baptized, that it somehow... Uh, apart from faith, uh, creates salvation uh, within us. And, you know, if, if, if that's the case, we're, we're not teaching baptism correctly. <laughs> I mean, something is wrong. Because it's not a work. It's, it's always in the passive voice, which means it's, we're, we're passive. We're a passive participant. It is something that is done to us. And as, as Paul says in this text... It's God who does the work. I mean, we just submit to it as as an expression of of our faith. Let me me illustrate it uh, this way. We talked about this in uh, the Wednesday night class I'm a part of two or three Wednesday nights ago. But we all all know the five-finger exercise, right? Somewhere in my mother's attic, I have this little ladder that I made in the fourth grade at the Southwest Church of Christ. And the bottom rung says, hear. The next rung says, believe. The next rung says, confess. The fourth rung says, repent. And the top rung says, be baptized, right? I mean, and that's good. That's truth. Don't misunderstand me. However, if you go back and study restoration history... Walter Scott, the great evangelist of the mid-19th century, is is credited with developing this little uh, five-finger exercise. But here was his original five. Believe, repent, be baptized, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit. Now, which little exercise, is more like Acts 2.38, our verse. It's Scott's original. You see, God's part has somehow been removed. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to restore God to the conversion process and, and, and to understand it is God who is working in baptism. I mean, it's, we're just against submitting to it. Number three, our goal must be to convert people to Jesus and not just get them wet. I, I was told this past week, several years ago, this congregation had a We Care campaign, and I think 62 people were baptized, and we only know of one that remains. That's not good, church. And, and, and maybe it's because we've, we've emphasized this, this idea of, of just getting people into the baptistry. And, and we have failed to convert them to Jesus. Some of you will remember Rex Bowles, who was one of my mentors at the Sunset School of Preaching. And Rex uh, used to bring in the AIM group during spring break. And you know Re- Rex's point, he, he used the gospel of Mark to share with people. And his point was, you know, if you get people to fall in love with Jesus, baptism's no big deal. I mean, people just want to identify with Jesus in that way. And so a second challenge this morning, as we put God back in the conversion process, to be sure we are converting people to Jesus. Remember remember our sermon on the Great Commission. Remember the order. We go... We baptize and we teach. After we baptize people, we don't forget people. We don't neglect people. We keep teaching. We keep discipling. We keep people moving to become more like their Lord and Savior. And then finally, number four. And and this this is more positive, all right? Frequently remember and reflect upon your own baptism and seize each opportunity to tell others about it. Since I'm preaching this morning, you get to hear about mine. It was on Tuesday evening, August the 11th, 1970, at the old fairgrounds in Ada, Oklahoma. In those days my home church, the Southwest Congregation, and the Central Congregation. That week, every year, would have a Sunday-to-Sunday gospel meeting, and it was always at the fairgrounds. And a stage and a makeshift portable baptistry would be be, uh, set up there on Hereford Field. And John Stanley Sayers was preaching that meeting that year. And I had a special connection with Stanley Sayers. He had preached in Manford, Oklahoma for a while, where my grandparents lived. And Brother Stanley had lived with them for a short time in a spare spare bedroom. And so I had this connection. And I had talked to my parents that Tuesday afternoon. We had already started school in those days. And uh, they said, yes, we studied, uh, we we think you're ready. And so I I couldn't wait for the invitation song. Guess what the invitation song was? Just as I am. And we sang the first verse, and I couldn't go. And we sang the second verse, and, and I'm still struggling to go. And even though I think we sang about 15 verses that night, I went on the third verse. I went on the third verse. And, you, you know, the more I have thought about it, I got baptized on a baseball field. <laughs> I, I mean, significant for me in my life. And I, lo- I love to tell that, and I love to share that. And Brother Stanley baptized me. You know, in those days, the preacher did all the baptizing. I, I kind of wished I'd have had my dad baptize me, to be, to be honest. There seems to kind of have been maybe a move uh, that direction. Um, but, but that's my story. And, and I've said before, some of the best stories we can tell are stories about our baptism. Uh, John, the, the church in Tulsa where I was, North Sheridan, they had a big daddy too. And it was Brother George Stevens. Four generations attended that church. And big daddy in Tulsa told me that he had been baptized in Tennessee, at a 30-day Brush Harbor meeting and was baptized in the Tennessee River. Pretty cool, right? I mean, not as cool as being baptized on a baseball field, but still pretty cool. Yeah. And and, and all these stories that we can share that, that that are designed to encourage us and to help us remember that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we need not fear anything. God protects us through His Spirit. As we live and as we become more like Jesus, hopefully, and as God uses us to have a powerful impact upon the world in which we live and the people that He brings into our lives. So today's question is pretty simple. Are you in Christ? Now, I meant to leave Bible class a little early and to sneak through to be sure the water was warm. It was cold in the auditorium initially. I assume the water's warm here. We don't have to go to the Red River. <laughs> Although that'd be pretty cool too. You know, right? So if you haven't been baptized, why not? And again, the question is not, do I have to be baptized? Why wouldn't I want to be baptized? Why wouldn't I want to identify with Jesus, just as He identified with us in His baptism? And and why wouldn't I want to receive God's Spirit? And why wouldn't I want God to go to work on my behalf and cut away my sin? And, And to place me in that sphere, that realm of being in Jesus. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you been baptized into His name? Won't you come while we stand and sing?